Welcome you one and all to our midweek prayer meeting and Bible study. We're going to commence by turning to hymn number 479, please. 479. Search me, O God, my actions try. Let my life appear as seen by thine all-searching eye. To mine my ways make clear. Let us all unite our hearts together in prayer. Let us all pray. Eternal, most gracious and heavenly Father, we thank thee that we can approach the throne of grace this evening and do so in and through the all-prevailing name of thy Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We thank thee for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. For the one who inscribed our names in the Lamb's book of life and in the fullness of time placed his love upon us, drew us by his grace even unto himself and who placed a new song in our hearts even praises unto our God. We thank the Heavenly Father that the Holy Spirit came to reside within. And how we rejoice 
for those times throughout our Christian pilgrimage when thou hast arrested our thoughts and our attentions, even in the things that we have done, in the statements that we've made, in the actions that we have performed, and we have been smitten in the inner man because we know that we have perhaps not walked as we ought to have walked. We have not spoken as we ought to have spoken and we have not served thee as we ought to have served thee. We thank thee that we have this evening an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we do thank thee for the prompting of the Spirit of God in these lives of ours. For those occasions when you have presented before us a, a door of opportunity whereby we can share with others what great things the Lord has done for us. Thank thee for those conversations that we have engaged in. And yet, Lord, we're very conscious that as we sojourn in this world, we are salt and light in a dark and desperate age. We're very aware that we are walking Bibles, walking epistles, as the great apostle said, known and read of all men. And as such, Lord, we pray that thou wilt be pleased to keep us close to the cross. Keep us as a people in the shadow of the cross that we may forever behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of this old world. We do ask, Lord, that as we engage in conversation even over these next few days perhaps being given the opportunity to invite folks along to the harvest services at the weekend we pray lord that you will give us favor with the people that you will cause a crisis in the thinking of the ungodly that they might see through our words and through our walk and through our testimony that we have been with Jesus and have learned of him. And so, Lord, we look to thee this night, that as we turn aside from this old world and, and gather as a group of believers around the precious word of life, we pray that it might please thee to speak to us again through thy truth ministered by the power of the Holy Spirit to our hearts and souls. And again, Lord, we pray that if there should be a word of encouragement this evening, that thou wilt make it abundantly clear to our souls. If there should be a word of counsel, then again, Lord, we pray that you will make it clear. If it should be a word of rebuke, give us listening ears and give us an understanding heart. And give us feet swift to follow after thee. We're conscious, Heavenly Father, of many of the burdens that thy people bear. And perhaps nobody else knows anything at all about it except thyself. As our faces differ, so do the, the problems in life that we face. So do the, do the difficulties and the obstacles that each one of us have to overcome. And Lord, we pray that thou wilt guide us every step of the way. We thank thee that thou art our guide, 
that thou art our protection, that thou art our fortress. And Lord, we ask of thee that thou wilt keep us in the center of the will, the plan, and the purpose of our great God. We do think of those who are unable to be with us this evening, those of our fellowship who are laid aside on beds of pain and sickness. We ask of thee that thou wilt draw graciously near and grant that they might be conscious of the prayers of the people of God ascending before the eternal throne on their behalf. Be with our pastor and his wife. We again thank thee for his labor of love and for his patience of hope in the Lord Jesus. We thank thee for a man in the pulpit here in Hebron that preaches the whole counsel of God, who has a passion for the souls of men, who has a a missionary zeal and and vision and and has a love for, for this people and for this flock. And Lord, we don't take all those qualities for granted, but we return unto thee thanks as a congregation for somebody that thou hast brought into our midst who will feed the flock of God in this corner of thy vineyard. Very mindful this evening of our Ukrainian friends who are with us. We thank thee for each and every one of them. And again, Lord, we pray that thou wilt bring the, the war to an abrupt end over there in Ukraine. We pray that very soon peace and stability will return to that needy land. Be with the the family and friends of all our loved ones who uh, are gathered here with us and uh, they have their family and friends over in Ukraine. We pray that thou wilt be with each and every one of them and bless them in all spiritual blessings in Christ. Do pray for David this evening, Lord, as he comes in a short while and shares with us that word that thou hast placed upon his heart, we pray that thou will bless him. Bless Rachel, keep thy hand upon the children, and we ask of thee that thou wilt very shortly open up an effectual door of service for them both. Grant that thou wilt undertake for them in the days which lie ahead, that they might not only be ambassadors of the truth, but that they might be winners of precious souls. So, Lord, bless us, be with us this night, we pray. Come amongst us and make thyself known. For we ask these things in the Saviour's precious and worthy name. Amen. Can we again turn to hymn number 537? Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Standing as we sing this hymn together please.
evening on this cold and dark night here in Balamuni. We want to give a warm welcome also to those who are tuning in on Sermon Audio, Facebook and YouTube. We bid you welcome in the Lord's precious name. Preparations are taking place over these next few days for the harvest services at the weekend. And so any who would have flowers, fruit or any harvest items are encouraged to bring them in by Friday afternoon. And Diane and the team, I'm sure, would be very much appreciative of anything that you can bring along in order to decorate the church for the harvest services. Tomorrow evening at 8pm is the Youth Fellowship. Please pray for our young people and for Samuel as he endeavours to, to lead up this work on behalf of the witness here in Hebron, that the Lord will bless the young people and that he might call many of them into his service. It's also our general presbytery that's taking place in our Castle Derg congregation at 8pm also. Saturday morning is the, the open air in the town centre at 11am. It's a, an open air witness um, that we have every other week. It's headed by our brother John McCauley and, and Mervyn as well uh, assists. And so please come along and, and join with us uh, as a public means of testimony to the saving and keeping power of the Lord Jesus in each and every one of our lives. And then the harvest weekend commences later that day. At 7.30 we'll have Mr. Stephen Greer with us from our Balamina congregation. He's the son of the Reverend John Greer. And our brother is a fourth year Bible student in the Whitfield College of the Bible. Stephen will come. He'll minister in song. He'll preach the word. And I also understand that the Hebron Choir will also be singing on Saturday evening. 12 noon is the midday service on the Lord's Day. For many, many years, Dr. John Douglas has been the speaker at that service in the will of the Lord. He'll be along this Lord's Day in order to take the services. And then on Sunday evening, we will have the Reverend Garth Wilson from our Sandown Road congregation. In the will of the Lord, I think the Reverend Park Mrs. Park will be back with us on that occasion if all goes according to plan. Now there are preparations that need to be made for uh, the, the suppers each evening and we would encourage as many as possible, uh, certainly from the ladies of the fellowship here, on Saturday evening half a loaf of sandwiches and a dozen buns if you can help in any way, shape or form. And then on Sunday evening three quarters of a loaf of sandwiches and a dozen buns, please. This Lord's Day, we commence with the early morning time of prayer at 8 a.m. I think I said just last Lord's Day, it's one of the, the best meetings, I think, throughout the week where God's people just gather around God's throne. Uh, if it's not your custom, if it's not your practice to join with us, why not come along this next Lord's Day? We just meet for about an hour and just get before the Lord and, and bring before him the burdens that we have upon our hearts and souls for our loved ones, for our friends, for our family, and also for the work of God here in Hebron and further afield. The Sabbath school is at 
Please pray for the boys and girls that the Lord might continue to work in the hearts and souls and lives of these children. And then Mervyn will be taking the Bible class at 10.45. He's continuing in the studies of Acts 17. This is the second message and it will be the relevance of the resurrection. Please pray for our brother. We are delighted to have our brother David with us. David has completed his course in the Whitfield College of the Bible. He's now waiting upon the leading of the Lord in his life. Please remember him as he comes this evening to to minister unto us. And remember both he uh, and Rachel as they uh, prepare for future life together that the Lord will open before them an effectual door of service. David. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's good to be with you here, and can I just thank Phil for leading, for taking that little bit of pressure upon himself and taking it off me. But now we want to go to God's Word, and if you have your Bibles, can we turn to Second Corinthians, please, and the chapter 10. Second Corinthians, chapter 10, and we'll take the time to read all of the chapter. We'll be looking at just selection of verses throughout the chapter, so we'll take the time to read it all. From verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience, when your obedience is fulfilled, do ye look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ's, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ's, even so are we Christ's. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord hath given us for edification, and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. That I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such an one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. But we will not boast of things without our measure, but according to the measure of the rule which God hath distributed to us, a measure to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reached not unto you, for we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things without our measure, That is of other men's labours. But having hope, when your faith is increased, 
that we shall be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to your hand. But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 18. We'll just bow in a word of prayer, please, before we come to the word. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we bow in your presence and we bow humbly and reverently. Lord, we, we come to you now and as we've read the word, we just ask simply that the Holy Spirit will have already applied that word to our hearts. That there's been something already has been speaking to us. And Lord, even as we come to preach, I ask for that help of the Spirit uh, to help and enable me to preach the word here tonight. Uh, not for my own glory, but as we've read here already, for the glory of our Lord and Savior. Lord, bless it. In your name we ask it. Amen. Amen. So what we want to think about tonight is the believer's response to an insult. As you'll see here in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, there is an insult coming Paul's way. It's maybe not clear to you at first reading, but really it's the insult of Paul being all bark and no bite. I'm sure you've heard of that before. Paul here is all bark and no bite. That's what they're saying. Now, of course, there's other charges given against Paul in later chapters as well, but here's the one in chapter 10. If you look at verse 10 that we've read here, they say, his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. So this is the insult coming Paul's way. If you look at that word contemptible, um, it doesn't mean that Paul's speech was full of hate speech. Sometimes we have that understanding of contempt. It's not that Paul mocked or ridiculed his hearers by his speech, but rather it simply means it was, it was like nothing. They're saying that Paul's speech was worthless. It was just unnoteworthy chatter. Now that's quite remarkable, of course, when you think of the epistles that Paul wrote uh, to the church. Of course, they're, they're full of power. They're full of great insight, theological insight, great of practical Christianity. Um, so we marvel at that, but that's really the point of the insult. These people are saying Paul's writings, they are so powerful, but in person, he's just a nobody. He's just all bark and no bite. And throughout Paul's ministry, you'll find, you'll struggle to find someone who was, uh, on the one hand, loved by so many, but on the other hand, he was also hated by so many. And that is even coming out in his speech. You think of the people within Lystra in Acts chapter 14. We're, we're, set, we're told there in verse 8 that there is a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother, mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak. And Paul, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up, upright in thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And the result of that occasion, people listened to Paul and they saw the miracle and they said, This is a God come down amongst us. See, his speech, some people loved it because they thought, Well, this is a God speaking. But then you think also of Eutychus. Whenever Paul was preaching, he preached for too long and Eutychus fell asleep and fell out of the window. So you see, there was two extremes. So people were divided over his preaching. They had differences of an opinion over how he preached. But it's one thing to degrade someone in how they speak. But you'll see in this verse, in verse 10, that they also had something to say about his appearance. They say there that he was weak. Bodily, he was weak. 
And they would have understood exactly what weak meant here. It doesn't just mean that he was frail looking, that he was without strength. There's a book in the, old, uh, in the second century. It was called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And Paul in that book is pictured as a small, short, bow-legged and eyebrows knit together man with a hooked nose. So I apologize if that describes anyone in here tonight. Don't take insult. But this is the, what they reckon Paul looked like. So what is going on here in this chapter? What's the truth about Paul? Was he actually all bark and no bite? Well, that's what we want to think about here tonight. It's just to go through this passage. And as we do so, just to pick out some of the things that Paul actually says in defense of himself. We've entitled this, of course, the believer's response to insult. Paul has been insulted here. And so for us as believers, we want to see what Paul does in response to that. Not only just to see the response of Paul, but hopefully, God willing, we'll see some practical application that we can make for ourselves if such things ever happen to us. But before we get into the response itself, maybe let's think about a little bit more on the accusers. Who are these people that's bringing that, this accusation to Paul here? Well, Paul, in a bit of sarcasm, I believe, in the next chapter, he calls these people the chief apostles. So he's saying in sarcasm, here am I, the apostle. What am I compared to these chief apostles? Uh, or even other translations call them super apostles. So these are the ones who are bringing the accusation. And I know the last time I was here, we spoke through the chapter of Jude. And I know that some things, I went through there extensively, pretty extensively, of those who would creep into the churches and seek to deceive. So some of this may seem like repetition to you, and I apologize for that. But before seeing Paul's reaction to these super apostles, we have to think about who they are. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're not actually told any names or who exactly they are, but we do get an idea of where they're from. They're not from the Corinth church, the Corinthian church. They're from outside the church. That's the first thing we have to notice. But they've come in for one reason, and it's to promote self above all else. So they're here with this self-promotion. And you imagine, if they're there to promote themselves, what has to happen to the gospel? Well, the gospel has to lessen. There has to be less of the gospel in order to promote yourself. But for these people to come in and just to attack the gospel, that would be a too obvious an attack. So what's the other tactic? It's to attack the person and the authority of the person who brings the message. If you can degrade the person, then you can degrade his message. So that's the tactic. And you think of this tactic itself. It's no new thing. Right there in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, we have the account of the fall and what was Satan's tactic. It wasn't just with an outright attack on God's word. It was an attack like that, but it wasn't just a deliberate kind of in-your-face attack. We're told there that the snake, he was subtle. It was deceit he used. So God had told Adam and Eve, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And the devil comes and asks, did God really say that? He comes and says, no, you'll not surely die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. He comes with this kind of deceitful tongue. So Satan used subtlety and deceit, and this is his favorite tactic. And so these people coming from without the church, these self-promoting apostles uh, that come in without, from without, they're just following their teacher. If you turn to our 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just over a chapter, you'll see in verse 13, 
Paul's describing these individuals. He says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. So it's important to see they're transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. You can't transform yourself into an apostle of Christ. Only Christ can do that work. But you see why they do this. It's no marvel in verse 14. For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. So here's these individuals. They're bringing up these insults to Paul. So they come in. They say to the Corinthian church. Is this really the man that you want to follow? Yes, he writes well. But just look at him. Listen to him. What's great about Paul? Look at us. What's great about him? And we'll come to answer that in just a moment about Paul. But just to say, this is no new tactic. Degrade the messenger and you can then degrade the message. This is what they're about. But before we leave off these accusers, notice something else from our passage. If you look at verse 12, we find here that they really were their own standard. When we think of their standards, they were their standards themselves. We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. So Paul's not going to get into this comparison war with them he's not going to do that because he says they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise so as we said Paul doesn't elaborate too much of the people but this will tell you all you need to know about them really ultimately they're concerned just with themselves it's with the outward appearance Uh, they compared themselves with themselves they compared themselves with each other Who can present the greatest knowledge? Who can present it in the best way? And then the better presence that a man has in the pulpit or in the platform, then the greater the man is, the more believable his message will be. So that's what they're really saying. Who can be the best orator? Who can give the best speech? Look at that man. That's the man to follow. But then here's Paul. What's he got? Romans chapter 16 and the verse 18. Of these kind of individuals, Paul tells, them, tells us, Romans 16, verse 18, They that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. It's just they're in, they're in it for themselves. And by good words and fair speeches, they deceive the hearts of the simple. Good words and fair speeches, that fair speeches really can just be translated as flattery. They use flattery, and we all know what flattery is. Um, Albert Barnes, the commentator, He says this of flattery. He says, Flattery is one of the most powerful means of forming parties in the church. Flattery is one of the most powerful means of causing parties or forming parties in the church. I think we all know what he means by that. If you want to form a little party of your own within the church, if you want your own little posse, what's the best way to do that? Just flatter other people to bring it in, bring them into your party. A little special attention here showed to someone, a little compliment here and there, and you can uh, get what you want in many cases. It's otherwise known as manipulation. That's what these people are really doing. They're manipulating the people, but using this flattery. Needless to say, you can see why they have this gripe with Paul, because he does none of this. They were concerned with the outward. He wasn't. They were concerned with the extravagant, with oratory speeches. Paul wasn't. Who is this Paul then? They would say, what would drive you to follow him? There's nothing great about Paul. And so with this, they sought to draw men out after themselves. And for the Corinthians, for these Grecians who lived in Corinth, they would have loved the charismatic style of the false apostles. That's what they were saved out of. 
These great ordinary speeches. The Greeks, they loved to debate knowledge and higher knowledge. And so they were in danger then of being led astray by these false apostles. So these are the accusers bringing the accusation, the insult to Paul. But with that being said, now we come to Paul's reaction itself. How did he react to all of this then? Well, first of all, you look at verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It's the best place to start. He says, now I, Paul, myself beseech you. So he's taking this to a very personal level. I, Paul, myself beseech you. But how, notice how he does it. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold towards you. So how's he doing this? He's going to approach this with the mind of Christ. A Christ-like spirit. One of meekness and gentleness. And so if we're going to get any practical application out of this study tonight, at least get this. When something like this happens to you, when insult comes your way, what's the best way to go about it? Look at Christ. Look to how Christ lived. Look to how Christ responded in occasions like this. And then that will give you a good indicator on how you should react yourself. And this is where Paul goes. He looks to Christ in meekness and gentleness. So what's meekness? Well, Meekness is really that characteristic of humility. So Paul's coming at this with humility, and especially humility that shows great patience. So even under great persecution, great insults, Paul's meeting this with patience and humility, with meekness. There's no retaliation. There's no bitterness towards the accuser. In 1 Peter chapter 2, if you turn there, please. Again, whose example is he taking? It's Christ's. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow after his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So here is Christ's example, and here's what Paul is doing here. When he's been reviled, he reviles not again. What's he do? He commits it to the one who judges rightly. He leaves it with the Lord. Not only with meekness, but gentleness is mentioned there. And this is, in this context, really just being reasonable. If you look into the word gentleness, actually, in the Greek, how it's used there, it often speaks of how a king or a judge would use leniency when you would expect him to use extreme punishment. And so here we see grace. Whenever you would expect Paul to fight back and use extreme measures to defend himself, here he's showing leniency, he's being gentle. And John Calvin has a word to pastors about this. And yes, he addresses pastors, but really it could go for any of us. We could take the advice personally. He says, it is the duty of a good pastor to draw his sheep on calmly and kindly, so that many suffer themselves to be governed rather than to coerce them with violence. So you think of a pastor, there's two ways he can go about as pastor. He can uh, drive the sheep, the flock, with a big stick. Right? He can uh, make them do things out of mere duty, just drive them forward the way he wants, or else he can use gentleness. There's no coercion. He's just using that gentleness, that kindly manner to govern them. To direct them. But Calvin goes on to say, I acknowledge indeed that severity is sometimes necessary, but we must always set out with gentleness and persevere in it, so long as the hearer shows himself to be tractable, 
Severity is the extreme remedy. So severity is the extreme. Let's be honest with ourselves here tonight. How often when someone does something against us, insults us, accuses us of something, how often is severity the first thing we jump to? But yet here we see Christ's example. It should be one of meekness, one of gentleness. So that's a challenge, I believe, already. Here's where the the rubber meets the road concerning our practical Christian faith. Now, I read a quote recently, and I can't remember who who quoted it or who who said it, um, or I'd tell you, but I can't even remember exactly, but it went something like this. You've maybe heard it before. It went something like this. When someone speaks against you, instead of fighting back, thank them, because when they do so, you recognize that the truth is actually far worse. Do you get what he's saying there? You see, often it's pride that makes us get our backs up when we're insulted. How dare you say that about me? And then we go on the attack ourselves. But if we're really honest with ourselves, if you could see past ourselves in that moment, we'd simply just take the criticism because we recognize they could say a whole lot worse about us. If they really knew our hearts, they could say a whole lot worse. So there is that to remember when insults come our way. But even if that's not the case... If you are a man or woman of great integrity, I hope and trust you are. But even men or women of God like that will have a meek and gentle response. In fact, the more integrity you have, the more meeker and the more gentler you will be. Why? Because you're more like Christ. So that's the first thing we notice here as Paul deals with this. He deals with it in meekness and gentleness. But moving on down the passage, you look at verse 4 and verse 5. For Paul, he lays out to, uh, to us here that his weapons are not carnal. Verse 4, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So here again, it's getting very practical. I believe there's lessons for us here. First of all, it's a reminder that the Christian life is a battlefield. And Paul, the apostle here, was not one bit surprised that these people would come in and that they would say these things about him. He's not surprised. He recognizes the battle. And of course, for us, from the moment we open our eyes in the morning till we go to sleep at night, believer, we are in a war. We're in a battle. And you're never off duty. Why is that the case? It's because the enemy never sleeps. He's never off duty himself. So we are never off duty. Who's the enemy? As the world, the flesh, and the devil. We all know the, the verse in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where Paul, he says there, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we are in a spiritual battle. And I always wondered if we could see more with spiritual eyes, if I could see more with those spiritual eyes, if I could see the powers If I could see the principalities, the rulers of the darkness of this world, if I could see the spiritual wickedness, I wonder would I fight all the harder? Would I be involved in the the war even more so? But you know, we don't actually have to see the spiritual side as in the realm, the spiritual realm, to know that there are strongholds to pull down. That there are philosophies and errors creeping in, creeping into churches, creeping into our society that need to be eradicated. There's those who lift themselves up against God who need to be cast down. There's no shortage of battles for us as believers today. But the point Paul is making here, not only are we to recognize we're in a battle, 
but we're to recognize what weapons we should be using in the battle. I trust it's clear to us that we are saved to be soldiers. That's what we're called in Second Timothy, soldiers. But the issue for Paul here is on the weapons. His, his point is focused on the weapons. Spiritual battles require spiritual weapons. So our weapons are not carnal. They cannot be. It's like, I thought it's like taking a knife to a gunfight. They're weak. But what is mighty? Well, if, if they were carnal, what would they be like? Well, they'd be like the weapons that Paul's accusers use. They were using flattering words. They were using manipulation. It was power plays. It was self-promotion. They were degrading the characters of others to build up self. They were fault-finding. They were having debates to prove who's right, who's better. And Paul, in his response, could have fought back like for like. No doubt in a a battle like that, Paul might have come out on top, but he doesn't even do that. Paul would not defend himself by use of these carnal weapons. The only way to be victorious in pulling down of strongholds and the imaginations of these men was to put off the ways of the flesh and put on the spiritual, the spiritual armor of God. And it's still the case for us. How do we combat the strongholds set up by the world? How do we break uh, into and spoil the strong man today? How do we silence our accusers? It's not by trying to outmaneuver or outsmart them. It's by wielding the sword of the Spirit. It's always been by the Word of God. Continue preaching the Word, preaching truth. Keep promoting Christ and His gospel. And we again take Christ's example. In doing all of this, we commit it all to Him. So what have we seen so far? We've seen in Paul's response, he was meek and gentle. He made use of the spiritual weapons. He didn't fight like for like. He went to the spiritual. Thirdly, he reaffirms his motive. And that's important here to notice as well. As Paul defends himself, he reaffirms his motive to the church at Corinth. And this we see a twofold motive. First of all, it was for the building up and the edification of the church. That's why he existed as the missionary. It was to build up uh, the church. But it was also ultimately for the glory of God. So we want to look into these two things just in our closing point. First of all, for the building up and the edification of the church. And I find it interesting that even while Paul is responding to these accusers, he's defending himself, he turns that around into um, leaving an example to follow. He turns that accusation around into something he can use to build up the church. I think that's important um, as a preacher, as a leader of any sort, or as a Christian in general, as the world looks on, that as we get accused of things, we turn it around and we use it actually for the edification of the church, building up the church and for the glory of God. But Paul's reason for being, you think of why he went to Corinth in the first place. We see it in verse 14 of Second Corinthians chapter 10. The purpose he went there was for the gospel. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure as though we reached not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. So Paul's reason for being with them initially was, was for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? And many were converted in Corinth and their lives were dramatically changed through the gospel. But Paul was not in the habit of just getting professions and moving on. He wasn't in the number, numbers game. He didn't want to just make professions, then leave the, the church, Taylor sink, or swim. He took it very seriously, this care for the churches. And if you turn over to chapter 11, you'll see there, he gives this great list of how he has suffered for the sake of the church. But then in verse 28, 
He says that beside all those things that are without, that which cometh unto me daily, the care of all the churches. And so part of this care was not only visiting them in person, but it was also in writing to them these powerful letters that we have to encourage, to correct, and to build up the church. But now Paul answers this criticism. He takes a break from the, the normal way that he went about his encouragement and his building up of the church. And now he takes a break to answer this criticism. But is he all bark and no bite? Now you notice he's not trying to convince the accusers. This letter is not to the accusers. Remember, he's left them with the Lord. But this bringing the matter here of this response is before the church. This is for their understanding. This is for their edification and for their safety. That as they see Paul deal with this issue, they see an example to follow. And ultimately, what example is it? It's a Christ-like example. Am I barking no bite? Well, he starts in verse 11 to answer that. Let such and one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. So what's he saying in that verse? He's really saying, he's letting them know in a sense, you want the Paul that you read of in my letters, well, you're going to get him. That's really what he's saying here. The power that I speak of through my letters, I will come in that, um, in my person. In fact, if you turn over to chapter 13, and just by the way, Paul's response to these accusers is from chapter 10 to chapter 13. But we're just dealing with chapter 10 here. But in verses 1 and 2, you read here, This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned. And to all other that if I come again... I will not spare. So those who have sinned, those who have erred, and to all others, I will come again and I will not spare. So Paul's first visit, as we've mentioned here, he planted the church. Many were converted and he remained there for a year and a half, teaching them through the scriptures, edifying the church. Since then he had left, he had written to them, more frequently even than the two letters that we have, he he had written other letters to them. But as well as that, he visited them a second time. But then there was a third visit coming. He wrote this letter, and then he was saying, I'm coming a third time. But this, this visit was going to be different. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. That really means he's coming this time in the judgment. right? So all those threats before, he was going to execute those threats. The power he had written... With throughout his letters, if they had not been taken heed to, if there was not restoration, if there was not repentance, then he says, if I come again, I will not spare. Why? Ultimately, because he cared for the church, the purity of the church. And while there was a time of patience for Paul, while even he, he let the people think there was this weakness, he let the accusers think that, it was just Paul showing meekness. Gentleness. He was showing patience with the people at Corinth. But at some point, the church was going to reap what they had sown. If they were not going to take heed to the power that was written within his letters, they're going to reap what they had sown. And often, isn't it the case in our own lives? Often we go astray. And in those times, we think of how God deals with us. 
and patience and love. He's merciful to us. He stays his hand for a time. And we thank God for that. But don't be mistaken. And this is for believers. God is a jealous God. God is a heavenly father who who desires that his children, they walk in righteousness, that they walk in holiness. And if we do not do so in the time of leniency, in the time of grace, then we will do so in the times of chastisement. Okay, so the Lord loves us enough to chastise us. But he would that we walk in righteousness and holiness without the chastisement. And Paul really is, is playing this out as well. Throughout his letters. Yes, there was power coming. And throughout his ministry... He had this care for the purity of the church. And while he seemed to be weak in that care, yet he was coming again and he was going to bring upon them the judgment that they had reaped if the repentance was not visible. You see, Paul's accusers, even though some of them among the the people of Corinth had mistaken Paul's long-suffering and kindness as meekness, they mistook it for weakness. And that was not the case. God is not weak in the times of leniency. He still is Powerful and as strong as he always was. But there will come a time of reaping if we do not heed his voice. But Paul at the end of his letter is letting them know those days of leniency are gone. If I have to come again, what you read of my letters, it's going to be what I'm going to be like in person. And never remember or never forget why it's going to be. Because he longed for the purity of the church. That was always his motive. But finally and quickly, the overarching motive was what? It was all for the glory of God. And I don't leave this to the last point because it's the least important. I leave it because it's the most important. And if you forget all else, remember this. It's all for the glory of God. You look at verse 17 of Second Corinthians chapter 10. At the end of that chapter, he gets to verse 17. He says, but he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. If you turn to Jeremiah chapter 9, in fact, Jeremiah chapter 9, this is where that quote actually comes from. In the verse 23, where Jeremiah, he writes here, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Now we mentioned the Grecians, the people from Corinth earlier. And what did they glory in? You read verse 23 and you see these things match very well. They gloried in wisdom, might and riches. And that's maybe why Paul had this in his mind to quote from Jeremiah chapter 9. Here's these false accusers, these super apostles. And... He's saying here, what do they glory in? It's wisdom, might, and riches. But here Paul is saying, let him that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So as these were commodities sought out among the Corinthians, Paul's directing his readers' attention away from those things, and therefore away from the false prophets or false apostles who only boasted in self. But in doing so, Paul's not only directing their attention away from them, he's also directing their attention away from him. It's not that Paul was defending himself here to build himself up. That's important for us to see here as well. It was never about Paul. And that really, when we think about that, we think about the glory of God. And we're, we're asking ourselves here, we're thinking, what, what does a man of God or what does a woman of God really look like? And we're trying to pull this out of 
2 Corinthians chapter 10. Here's really where it comes down to. This is the crux of the whole matter. What is his ultimate motive? You watch how a person lives. You watch how he deals with others, how he reacts, how, what his mindset is towards himself and towards God. What ultimately is going to be the test? Does he give all the glory to God? Or is there room for self? Does he build himself up? Does she, does she do it for her own glory is there, or is it all for the glory of God? This is how you'll mark out a true apostle and this is what Paul is revealing to them. You see these men who are the super apostles. Who am I compared to those? But he's saying, I give glory to God, they glory in self. And so coming to the end of the study, I, I trust there's some practical things we've seen through this response. And, you know, I was talking to somebody today and they were asking me, are you ready for tonight? And I said, well, not quite. Because this study really... I found once I got into it, I started to think maybe I should pick something else. But it was too late. I was into it. There's four chapters here where you could spend days in as, as to what a man of God or what a woman of God really looks like. And it's all coming from this response of Paul uh, through how he deals with these accusers. The believer's response to an insult. But notice here and finally, Paul's defense of himself is just recap what we've thought about Here's the example to follow. Our reactions always should be Christ-like. One of meekness and gentleness. We should not fight back like for like, defending ourselves with the, the flesh, but rather fighting carnality with carnality we see to be wrong. We engage ourselves in the spiritual battle using the spiritual weapons. And then always remembering the motive. We live for the edification and building up of one another and ultimately then for the glory of God. So that's what we've been seeking to draw out of this passage. And as I said, there's much more. If you read those four chapters of Paul's response, do it in your own time, you'll see a lot there of how Paul gives this an example of what a man of God, a woman of God, really looks like. So may God, the Lord, just help us to apply what we've said here tonight to our own lives. For his name's sake, amen. Hand the meeting back over to Phil. Well, can I thank David for his words of counsel and for his words of wisdom? I was just thinking myself as our brother was speaking. I'm sure all of us have been the recipients of insults and, and snubs uh, from this old world in which we live. Snubs and insults from a watching world because we're believers in the battle and we are warriors in this world and we're soldiers who are in service. And as David was talking there about um, how, how the world looked upon the physical appearance of, of Paul, I couldn't help but uh, turn to that portion uh, at the beginning of Corinthians where it says in Corinthians chapter 1, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory 
in his presence. So David, can we thank you for that word tonight? It was a challenging word and it certainly spoke to my heart and to my soul. Before we come to our time of prayer, can we just turn to hymn number 574? When the storms of life are raging, tempest wild, on sea and land, I will seek a place of refuge in the shadow of God's hand.
As we come to our time of prayer, please remember those who are on the prayer list here. Many of them have been on the prayer list for quite some time, but they still need uh, us holding the ropes and us bearing them up at the throne of grace on a weekly basis. And then please remember also the land of Ukraine. It's very, very near to our hearts. We turn the TV screens on and we, we see the conflict that is still raging in this needy land. Please pray that the Lord might just intervene. He could bring it to an abrupt end in next to no time and pray that uh, the family and the friends of the folks who are here with us might be protected from all harm and from any danger. We do want to thank those who have been joining us on Sermon Audio, on Facebook and on YouTube and as we now approach the throne of grace here in Hebron we're going to bid you a fond farewell and we'll see you on the Lord's Day. Does anybody have...